It seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, a podcast presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services company. I am Jess Guffey, and I am joined by my host, Kate Rooney. Hello, Catherine. <laughs> hey, Jess. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I realized that in previous episodes, we've referred to each other as Cart and Jass, and I feel like we should maybe explain <laughs> that, <laughs> that story. Yes. I, I honestly don't even know where it came from, but it's our alter egos, essentially, yeah. when we That's- do something dumb. <laughs> mine came from a typo someone called me mistyped kate and wrote cart instead and it kind of stuck uh and yeah. yeah whenever we do something dumb it's like well that's a that's a real cart move that's a real joss move <laughs> it's so stupid and if we want to put it together it's joss cart in joss. all caps joss cart. it's just like an alter ego alternate <laughs> universe Although i'm really glad like, you brought that up i feel like i'm uh, just more of a cart than I've ever been in my life. Yeah, I'm more I, I cart than Kate at this point. I think. <laughs> uh, I just like that they have like distinct personalities. Like, I'll say, "Oh, that's very on brand for Kate," and then when it's very on brand for Cart, like you know, oh, you know yeah. that it's you a know. cart moment. But there's also cart magic. Sometimes I refer to it as <laughs> when you design something cool. So I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Sometimes magic can really stem from stupidity, let's say. Or says Kate Rooney. D- Michael Scott. <laughs> now, just I hope uh, I hope you'll lend me your ear today. I'm Be- yours for the next however many hours the stakes, my dear. Perfect. Because today we are going to talk about the original, the OG of sad, tortured, starving artist, Vincent <gasps> Van Gogh. Yes, I had a feeling you were going to do an artist. I'm so happy you finally are doing one because it's way more your wheelhouse than mine, being a true artiste like you are. And I don't know much about him other than the whole ear situation, so I'm excited. <laughs> Did you get my whole lend me your ear thing in the beginning? Hold on, let me explain now my joke. It. That makes it so much funnier. <laughs> so, yeah, Van Gogh is a Dutch post-impressionist painter who, as you may know, is among the most famous and influential figures in the history of Western art. So in just over a decade, he created over 2,000 works of art, and that includes uh, around 860 oil paintings. And most of that just uh, all came from like the last two years of his life. Well, you said this is uh, you said that I uh, am an artist and whatnot, but I'm certainly not an art historian. So I didn't know much about him either. A quick question for you, though. Did did you have Meet the Masters when you were a kid growing up? 
Mm-mm. Oh, man. Okay. That was just like a program that a lot of like elementary schools had, at least in my area in Orange County, where like each month um, they would come in and you'd learn about a, a famous artist and then you'd like recreate their paintings. But that's kind of like the extent of my knowledge or was the extent mm-hmm. of my knowledge of, of Van Gogh prior to this. We did learn about him in elementary school and we had to do our own version of Starry Night. Yeah. Remember, but okay. beyond that, not a whole lot of knowledge. But because I'm not an art historian, I, I think it's important to kind of discuss what we mean by different periods of art when I say post-impressionism. So I listened to an interview with a, a famous art historian, Dr. Sheila Hoffman, and she describes it in a way that really clicked for me. And that's all these different art movements are kind of like the different goals that artists have or the different goals of art. So impressionism began with the, the goal itself was to express what the artist was seeing for the brief period of time, kind of like a, a snapshot. It's like, here's what I'm looking at. I'm going to show my impression of what is in front of me right now. Just using quick strokes, uh, a lot playing around with light a lot. Clearly, post-Impressionism came after that in 1886, and the intention here was kind of more to express emotions in the art, more personal, and also just experimenting more with different colors and shapes. So that's a lot of what Van Gogh did. And The more you know. The more you know. He was kind of known for being (laughs) unsuccessful in his lifetime. He was considered a, a madman and a failure by most and harsh words i know what well, he didn't we're gonna get to all this but he didn't become famous until after his suicide and kind of just became this uh, misunderstood genius so to speak so let's uh let's talk about his life you know ear let's go here we go <laughs> <laughs> How many ear jokes can we insert into this episode? <laughs> I don't know. Ear the me out. Does not ear exist. Me out. The limit does not exist. <laughs> so Vincent Van Gogh, and by the way, I, that's like the American pronunciation of it. I'm sure it's more like Van Gogh, but no one wants to hear me say that for an hour. So we're going to say Van Gogh. He was born Perfect. in Groot Zundert, Holland on March 30th, 1853. Now, he was not the first Vincent Van Gogh, though. He had mm. a brother, Vincent Van Gogh, who was born and died on March 30th, 1952. So exactly a year before he was born, to the day, his Wait, parents... 1852, right? What did I say? 1952. Yeah, not, not yet. <laughs> I was trying to do the math on that. I was like, something doesn't, something doesn't add up here. <laughs> Sorry, 1852. So his parents gave birth to a stillborn who's named Vincent Van Gogh exactly a year before the Van Gogh that we, we know today was born. That's kind of creepy that you're naming your kid the same name as your kid that just... I think you're destined to have a tortured life at that oh, right. point. I don't know. Well, I mean, how, how creepy it. is this? His parents, who... I mean, it's very sad. They were grieving. They had to bury their child, and they set up a tombstone to mark the grave, like, right outside their house. So our Vincent Van Gogh that we're talking about today grew up just at, with the sight of a grave with his name on it, and, like, the same so <laughs> day of his birth. It's so morbid. And I will say at the time, it wasn't totally uncommon for parents to name a surviving child after the one that died. But 
Yeah, it doesn't mean that it wasn't incredibly traumatic to see that growing up, man. And, and probably, this is just conjecture, but probably added to some of his angst and whatnot growing up. Because that, that, that'll mess with your head, right? Yeah, if you're seeing, I mean, normal kids go outside and play hide and seek and tag. If you're going outside and seeing a gravestone with your name on it, I just something's got to give there. I just picture little Jess Scuffy running outside to to play tag, and there's a tombstone that says Jess Scuffy. <laughs> scream, I think. <laughs> it's so dark. Okay, so he's he's the oldest kid of many. His mother gave birth to Tio who's his younger brother and became like a huge part of Vincent's life. It was like, he was like his closest friend, his, his agent. And then he had three younger sisters, his father and his grandfather were both pastors. So he grew up in a very religious and very austere kind of household, I would say. But as a kid, he was just highly emotional, didn't have a lot of self-confidence and he just kind of struggled with his own identity and direction, as, as many of us do, I'd say. Sounds familiar. Sure. To a bunch of other people we've covered. Yeah. So his sister Elizabeth, she, she wrote in her memoirs and recalls Vincent being a serious, sensitive boy who preferred solitude to the companionship of family and friends. Uh, and he loved flowers, birds, and insects. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. A man of the outdoors we sure. love. He was, a, he was a good student, but according to his sister, his choice of clothing and eating habits and solitary nature made him appear slightly strange to others from a young age. So he's already kind of, like, unique in his own way, a little different from everyone else. Nothing, like, crazy, but just, you know, a little sensitive kid who liked to be in solitude with the insects. You know, that's, that's fine. It's not super strange yet. I feel like yeah. there are kids like that, especially if they're highly creative. Yeah, I mean, he he would draw and paint here and there, but again, it wasn't anything like unusual or outstanding, just kind of like modest talent. And so as a young man, he starts working as an art dealer, just traveling around, and but he starts to really, you see like more and more, he starts to become like really depressed and uh, having some mental instability, but he transfers over to London where he becomes deeply depressed. And I think one of the reasons uh, is that kind of in everything that he does, in all facets of his life, like relationships, art, school, work, whatever, he throws everything into it. Just it, it completely uh, absorbs him. An all or nothing kind of dude. Exactly. So he moves to London to work, I believe, as like an art dealer, so to speak. And because the job just completely absorbed him, he was just super depressed, frustrated. And kind of the first time we see this very unstable psychological condition. It's kind of been determined that it was likely to be bipolar disorder or maybe Mm, even mild schizophrenia, but we don't exactly know. In fact, most of what we know about Van Gogh comes from the letters that he wrote back and forth to his brother, Tio, because they were besties. But also Van Gogh was like compulsive about writing letters. He would write letters constantly to to his brother. But it kind of turned out great for us because now we learn everything from these letters. Yeah. I was just going to say, imagine if we didn't have that and he wasn't so compulsive about it. I mean, he's one of the greatest artists of all time and we wouldn't know virtually anything anything about him yeah because he didn't he was famous during his time so in between 1860 and 1880s when he kind of like really 
finally becomes to or decides to become an artist. But he had already uh, experienced two unsuitable and happy romances. Well, more than two, actually. Let, let's talk about Vincent Van Gogh's love life because it was a sad That's one. <laughs> Ready. So, as I mentioned before, he was he was raised by his strict Protestant pastor father, and his relationship with with women was interesting because he he like had this respect for women as like chaste, unattainable creatures, and but then also he had this very strong need for intimacy that was kind of like a little bit too much, you know, like you're like, he's just like love bombing people everywhere. And the women were like, dude, can you take it down a notch, please? Stage five clinger over here. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of the women that he fell for were much older than him. Interestingly enough. Equal opportunity, Vincent. Okay. (laughs) See you. The the young Vincent Van Gogh pr- proposed to three women in his lifetime. Uh, in 1872, there was Caroline. She was actually uh, Vincent's second cousin on his mother's side. Oh, okay. We're getting a little ancestral. Uh, yeah. okay. It went unrequited. She, she married another guy. It was kind of like, leave me alone, dude. <laughs> <laughs> he also fell in love with the daughter of his landlord. I'm going to butcher this name. Eugenie Lawyer in 1873. He was turned down by her as well. She was secretly married at the time. That was a huge rejection. He was just so sad about it. Mm. Yeah. And then the third girl was a woman named Key, who was also his cousin, mind you. Oh my God, bro. Enough with the cousins. I know. And there her- are so many people in this world. <laughs> Her husband had, like, literally just died, and Vincent swoops in and is like, ooh, hey, I'm here. And she's like, no, get away from me. (laughs) Never. Please. At least one of them had some sense about it. Yeah. So, aside from all of these main relationships that he had, he was attracted to, and this is an actual quote, those women whom the clergyman damn so and supercious, I can't even say that, su- superciliously despise and condemn from the pulpit. Which, that's a bunch of fancy speak for uh, he loved sex workers, or at the time called prostitutes. Oh. He loved I brothels. mean, he was from Holland, and they are known for the red light district and i don't know how far back the red light district goes in amsterdam but you know they kind of celebrate that in holland so yeah maybe it wasn't that out of line so much so that he was hospitalized with syphilis at one point and another sexually transmitted disease that i can't recall great but yeah he he had a couple different romances here and there with some different prostitutes including cn who was pregnant when he met her on the street they were both definitely physically and emotionally unstable. Uh, yep. Later came Margot. She was 10 years a senior. She attempted suicide at one point. It was just like constant chaos. Just he's choosing the wrong women, but he's also highly unstable and it shows. I think there's a lot to be said about, we haven't really touched on this before, but I've been thinking about it a lot with people that we've covered and now it's becoming more apparent, the people that they surround themselves with really do dictate their trajectory, I think. If you're surrounding Mm -hmm. yourself with people that are stable and are willing to tell you when you're wrong or out of line, 
or whatever it is, then you're going to be a lot better off than being surrounded by yes men or yes women and failed relationships and people that are also unstable because who do you have to look to when things get tough? So I don't know. Perhaps if you were surrounded by people that were a little more stable than he was, then he would have had a different outcome in his life, but we don't know. Yeah. I mean, he had a a very supportive family, but I would almost argue like too supportive. Like enable it. Exactly. They were enabling him because we'll come to find out he, he sold like one painting his entire life. He wasn't making money and his family supported him the entire time. Specifically his brother, Tio was, was always just supporting him, always sending him money. So yeah, it was like he, he wanted to kind of have this art lifestyle and whatnot, but he wasn't making money from it. And his family was they were annoyed by it, but they were also supporting him and letting him go down this path. So Eugenie, the the one who was the daughter of his landlord, after she rejected him, uh, he was super depressed. Like he had, he was in London at the time working, and uh, because he was so sad about it, he kind of transferred back and forth between Paris and London, trying to find his footing. He eventually ended up in back in Paris in, in 1875, and was still just totally miserable. And we can see this in all the letters to his brother because they were just like really sad, but also just like kind of confusing and, and muddy. The only time that he really seemed passionate was when he was discussing painting or religion. And even his appearance at the time was reflecting this. It was he became more shabby looking and just kind of like his attitude was so temperamental and but also his apathetic to everything it it was really annoying it was affecting his career because all of his clients and his employers were like get a grip dude like yeah they were all fed up with him and his family kind of was like that too but like i said they were still supporting him so as he became more introverted and depressed he sought religion to help him out um it obviously had been a part of his life since he was a child but this this time he became obsessed as he was with every aspect of his life. And like we see with like a lot of the people that we we talk about, they really hone in on one subject or something and just become, I don't know, can't focus on anything else. It's yeah. It's all encompassing. mm -hmm. So he, yeah, he's like obsessively spiritual and would stay up all night studying the Bible, uh, a pilgrim's progress. Man, I had to read that book and uh sounds terrible (laughs) imitation of christ yeah like just staying up all night reading them not taking care of his health at all and eventually he realizes like you know what maybe i'm not cut out for the religious life uh he he went like through a spiritual crisis and just like bailed after that Uh, (laughs) uh, oh vincent just dropped it you know and i think it was really because he was just floundering. He didn't know what he was going to do. At this point, he hadn't really decided to become an artist yet. He's just floating around doing different odd jobs and being sad. (laughs) (laughs) And being sad. Just being sad. In 1880... What's your job? I'm being sad. (laughs) Sad. You could argue that that was just uh, Vincent Van Gogh's job, to be sad. Uh, So in a letter to his... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in a letter to his brother he, he said how can I be of use to the world 
can't I serve some purpose and be of any good? So he's really grappling with that. He's like, what's the point, man? So existential. So existential. And I can't imagine having to battle those thoughts every single day. Yeah. Have nothing to distract you. Oh, poor Vinny. (laughs) Vinny. So at this time, uh, his brother, Tio, is still sending him money monthly just to support his his poor, sad, suffering brother. <laughs> and like I said before, it wasn't until 1880 when he really decided to become an artist. And that's what he does. He, like, abandons his whole religious mission and just was like, you know what, I want to become an artist full time. Just announcing that into the void. So he moves <laughs> Hello, to the... Void. <laughs> hey, void, I'm an artist now. I I declare bankruptcy. (laughs) I do declare that I am an artist now. Don't know what accent that is. It's definitely not Dutch, but sure. Huckleberry agrees. So he moves to The Hague, which is in the Netherlands, and he's able to run a studio, probably paid for by his brother. He starts taking lessons in drawing and just kind of like st- studying painting technique alongside his cousin, Anton. Who Another he cousin. Okay. He wasn't in love with Anton. It's okay. He just <laughs> okay. studied with him. Okay. Uh, but they, they spent time just painting and drawing together. Uh, not this time his subjects were just, you know, country people, but it was like he liked to focus on the poor people and the hardworking people of the mines and he starts to like kind of play around with the different lighting effects and shadows and starting starting to sort of find his own style but not the style that we know today of Van Gogh it was it was kind of like dark and now this is just kind of personal opinion but I almost got the sense that he had this kind of like uh, savior complex like he was fascinated by the poor community his family was kind of like upper middle class so he didn't come from that that world but he liked to portray it in his art yeah and he would he would like paint the workers and fishermen in the hague and it kind of like it was he was attempting to express like real human feelings and create drawings that would like touch people it wasn't just the impression the snapshot of what he's saying he's trying to evoke emotion in his artwork a noble cause yeah sure so he he's studying art and trying to find happiness in this and his early Dutch period paintings are really somber toned and a little bit darker. And this is when he creates one of his most famous painting called the potato eaters. Uh, <laughs> and it's Damn literally it. a group of poor, uh, a Dutch family sitting around a table in like a very kind of like shoddy room eating potatoes but the, the, the details in it are fascinating because there's, like, small things in there, just, like, how he showed how, like, the table is falling apart and, like, their mm. hands are all bony and, yeah, it was just kind of, like, dark and depressing and, like, the bold and colorful styles that he eventually became famous for. Who is the Pickles' favorite artist? I don't know. It's Salvador Dilly. <laughs> okay okay that that joke was the worst but you know what's not the worst design pickles flat rate unlimited creative services no it is not the worst with adobe source files included brand profiles unlimited users smart designer match we could go on and on all day there's a reason why design pickles ranked on the Inc. 5000 two years in a row and you know what else isn't the worst 
If you're listening to this podcast, you get $100 off your first month of any plan if you use the code WORST at checkout. It's pretty nice. Yeah. Use checkout code WORST. It's W-O-R-S-T, all caps. And you can get $100 off uh, any plan. So Essentials, our pro plan, our custom illustrations plan. Start creating. It's awesome and so fast and we love it so much. So now we're going to go into... Paris. And we're, we're in Paris in 1886. And, and Vincent was super poor at the time. He had run out of money specifically because he was spending all of his money on nude models. And I just kept thinking about Titanic. Paint me like one of your French girls. That's what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> all right, Celine, calm down. Yeah, he just wasn't taking care of himself. He's still relying on his brother, Theo, Theo, sorry, to to pay for everything, but just was not taking care of himself. He's just like in poverty, sick, chain smoking, drinking a lot. Great. And basically in the middle of an absolute breakdown, although I'd argue his life is just like one long breakdown. Seems to be the case. He kept getting into arguments with his, his art teachers and his students about everything. Because he was just like, my way is right. Your way is wrong. He thought that everyone was just like, these are all intellectual people who are devoid of emotion. They're all dead. And my art will transcend. And you're all wrong. Okay. So we're kind of a little bit of an ego boy. All right. Mm -hmm. So he's he's actually living with Dio in in Paris at this point. His brother was a successful manager at a gallery so he's just kind of like living in his brother's shadow and he starts uh, studying other impressionist painters like Monet and Gauguin and he really tries to imitate their techniques so he's not seeking his own path he just is specifically trying to imitate these other artists but his dark palette starts to kind of lighten and he's using these like short brush strokes so again closer to that impressionist style and he wasn't really able to successfully copy their style. He, like, it didn't work. It just, I don't know. I mean, he's just trying to reinvent the wheel, but he can't even do that well. Vinny, <laughs> so he starts Vinny, kind of. Vinny. <laughs> I love that you keep calling him Vinny. <laughs> Start using that now. So Vinny starts creating his own kind of bold, unconventional style. It's bringing in some of his own techniques. It starts to, like, distort and exaggerate some of the techniques that other artists were using in order to express or really reflect the the turmoil that's going on his own crazy emotional life. Isn't that crazy that I feel, I mean, he's the first artist that we've covered on this show, but just in general, the artist world, they're able to capture the madness in their own brains that no one else can see. And that's always been a fascinating concept to me is that whatever they are able to put on a canvas is what they're feeling and seeing in their brains that no one else would have access to. And then it's like, Mm -hmm vomited onto this canvas for the whole world to try to understand and reflect upon. I think that like, especially in later periods of art where we're starting to see more of, I don't know, like Picasso, for example, where it's kind of crazy at first, like it doesn't look like a normal landscape, but but that's like the emotions on canvas. Yeah. But you still see that. I mean, obviously with Van Gogh, it's just like, he did, oh gosh, it was like over 40 self-portraits. Um, yeah. And he did do like scenery and stuff like that, but it was still expressing how he felt with use of, of color and different brushstroke techniques. 
by the way, with the whole portrait thing, sidebar, someone might think like, well, that's really, um, I don't know, that's so vain of someone to just paint themselves over and over again. But it wasn't out of that. It was more like, because, okay, you think about like a portrait of like a queen or royalty and it it is a very beautiful, it's almost putting them in a better light than how they really look. Yeah. But Van Gogh's self-portraits were like, I'm ugly. Look at me. This is how I really look. <laughs> I think that's really fascinating. And also, in most of his portraits prior to the whole ear story, which we'll get to eventually, he's kind of turning his head so you only see one ear. And it wasn't until after he cut his ear off that you start to see his head turn and you can see he has a bandage on one ear, but he also has his other ear. It's just, I don't know what that means. It's just like, oh, look, that's. Did he know? He wasn't planning on doing that, but right. he's able to sh- tell his story through art somehow. And it's clearly reflecting. I mean, if he's trying to paint himself realistically and he views himself as low self-confidence and things yeah. like that, then that's going to come out on the canvas. And that's how he's portraying himself, evidently. He had very low self-esteem. Poor Ben. Vinny. So... Vinny. In Paris, again, his, his, I feel like I wrote this down 20 times, but his uh, mental health just began to decline more. So it's like, it never really got better, just kept getting worse. Again, we don't really know exactly, we can't diagnose what he had because he's no longer living, but there's a lot of uh, assumptions that he probably had mild epilepsy and schizophrenia and or bipolar disorder compounded with as I mentioned before, syphilis, glaucoma, oh boy. Uh, possibly like lead poisoning from the paint he was using and alcoholism. So he had all of these things That's going it. on. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Okay. <laughs> I wonder he had low self-esteem. It's so sad. But he would have sad. these like crazy mood swings. He was, he was violent at times, depressed and just erratic. And I, I keep pulling his quotes but it's because we learned so much of this from his letters and in one of the letters he wrote to his sister he said that it seems as if there are two different beings oh sorry this is actually Tio writing to his sister saying that it seems that there are two different beings in him the one marvelously gifted fine and delicate the other selfish and heartless wow they could see these two sides of him where he's just like so insanely talented he's this fantastic artist He's delicate, he's sensitive, but this other side of him, he's mean, and he's just so selfish and cruel. Poor Vinny. Poor Vinny. It makes me really sad when we talk about people in history that are more historical figures now that Mm -hmm. go through issues like this, because you know that people didn't understand anything. I mean, we still don't understand a lot about the brain today, and our technology is way more advanced, but... To know mm-hmm. that they were going through that and feeling so tortured and people, instead of empathizing with them, they looked at them as though they were lesser than or weird and didn't fit into society. And it's so sad to think about because a lot of those people probably could have lived much better lives mm-hmm. in today's world than they did back then. And that could have potentially changed their careers a little bit. But think about that yeah. often. Me too. And his story is just so tragic because of, yeah, like all of that. He he dealt with this and... He had bad luck everywhere, but also just his his illnesses weren't being treated in the right way. And he was enabled a lot by his family, as we mentioned. So, and he never got to see the success that he became. So had he lived in a different time, maybe. I've never watched Doctor Who, but I, I know that there's a, a very famous scene. I think I've seen a clip of it where they 
have Van Gogh come, uh, or he, he appears in modern times and they're walking him through an art gallery where he sees his art and he kind of like breaks down like, wow, like I actually made it. How crazy is that? It gives you goosebumps. Yeah. Now, okay, so he's living in, in Paris this time, but then eventually he moves to southern France in a, a town called Arles. And this is like a totally different area, a little rough, but basically he moved there with the intention to create this sort of like art colony. Okay. Yeah, he wanted to like found this like school of art where his friends would come, and they'd all hang out and create and just be artists and do artisty things together. Artisty. What are artisty things, Kate? <laughs> painting and being sad. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Checks out. So he moved into this this house, and it was a yellow house. So he called it the yellow house. This so became very like a, original. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like he painted a, a portrait of it and used like this palette of yellow and blue, and those were like his real signature colors. And it was just like more intense. It was just like bright blue sky and this yellow house. So again, we're we're moving from these like sad dark potato eating uh, <laughs> rooms to this like beautiful, bright, colorful, happy tones. In a letter he wrote to his sister, he wrote, my house here is painted the yellow color of fresh butter outside with raw green shutters. It stands in the full sunlight on a square which has a green garden with plain trees, oleanders and acacias. And it is completely whitewashed inside and the floor is made of red bricks and over it, the intensely blue sky. There, I can live and breathe, think and paint. Wow, that is quite the description. Yeah, and there's, like I said, there's a big shift when he moved here. Like he got really inspired by these colors, and this, this is where we start to see the paintings that he's more famous for that, that have these bold, vibrant colors and whatnot. So this is like the most prolific period of his life. He, he completed around two hundred paintings and about like hundred drawings and watercolors. And he really hoped that other like-minded artists would all come here and create and work together, like I said. But this didn't work out super well. Quick note on that. Another thing that we've noticed is that people that are creative and oftentimes a little bit different or eccentric like to be surrounded by or strive to be surrounded by like-minded people. I'm just thinking mm-hmm. of Prince specifically with Paisley yes. Park. And it seems like Vinnie Boy really wanted to create something similar with art, but clearly didn't have the knowledge of how to actually execute that plan. But the intention is the same, I think. They feel better when they're surrounded by creative people. Uh, When I was researching this, that was the first thing that came to my mind was what happened with Prince and him trying to kind of create this art collective and heck even Brian Wilson to some point too, because he had that group of musicians coming in, they were all creating music together. And I think it, it, one of the reasons it really didn't work for Van Gogh is because he was so mentally unstable. Like maybe if, if he had been treated or I don't know, circumstances were different, it could have been a really beautiful yellow house with artists just vibing off each other and making beautiful art uh, or it could turn to a cult. Who knows? Yeah, but... I mean, there are two paths here. <laughs> <laughs> there's no middle ground. Now, <laughs> the, there's, do you know who Paul Gauguin is? Or mm-hmm. are you familiar with that name? Yeah, he's another French artist with the whole uh, post-impressionist m- movement. 
hugely influential on Van Gogh, and he ended up joining him at the Yellow House, but it was a huge disaster. Just they could not get along. Van Gogh was just like had that crazy temperament. It made him really difficult to get along with. And they would like stay up all night arguing about art and just like <laughs> No dude, not... my brush stroke is better. No, my brush stroke is better. What are you exactly. saying? Exactly. Right <laughs> and I mean he wasn't he was just totally neglecting his health. He wasn't like eating right. He was drinking a ton. So near the end of eighteen eighty eight, this is where we hear the infamous ear incident. Oh boy. Uh, like a lot of the story is kind of up to debate with different historians, uh, like how much he sliced off and the whole circumstances of how it happened. But here's what I've gathered. Basically, Van Gogh and Gauguin were fighting and Gauguin was uh, basically trying to leave Arliss and allegedly Van Gogh pursued him with a razor. And oh. Gauguin stopped him. Okay. But then, yeah, Van Gogh just went to his room where he said that he was heard voices in his head. He was having auditory hallucinations, and he severed his left ear with the razor. Again, they don't. It, it's been debated whether he cut off like his whole ear or just a part of it. But regardless, it was caused severe bleeding. Yeah. And yeah. Yep. <laughs> I also read somewhere that. The, like, he could have maybe had a seizure, and that's how he cut it off, but I don't know. I think he was going off the deep end here. <laughs> and, and if he was schizophrenic, it's highly likely that yeah. someone in his head told him that it was better if he cut it off. Or maybe he was trying to escape the voices. It, right, that's them. what I think, yeah. That would make the most sense, I think. Exactly. But what's even crazier than him cutting off his ears, what happened afterwards, he went to a prostitute named Rachel and uh, at a local brothel and tried to give her his ear as oh a gift. Oh my what are you doing? <laughs> no. no. That reminds He's me a- of like on a very different scale, but... I know your dog has done this before. My dog will bring me rocks oh, and sticks yeah. and think they're like presents. <laughs> yes. He's like, here's my ear. <laughs> Hope you like it. <laughs> Merry He's Christmas. Under, uh, can you imagine? I mean, my Huckleberry has given me grosser things than that, <laughs> too, to be honest. <laughs> but in a very, yeah, they, they mean it in a very nice way. Exactly. <laughs> I love you. Here's some, here's some raccoon poop. But then you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't really know what to do with a stick. Well, well, Van Gogh said to Rachel was that he requested that she keep this object like a treasure. It was a... (laughs) It's so awful. We're we're laughing, but it's so sad because he's clearly mentally ill at this time. And this was really like a a last-ditch attempt at romance after he had clearly failed and romance so many times it's really sad i don't mean to laugh at his i'm not laughing at that i'm laughing at the visual of him showing up with an ear in a box how did he transport said ear i have so many questions but (sighs) my god poor dude poor dude however he had no recollection of this entire event he he like woke up the next day at the hospital and again this kind of like suggests that he probably did have just like a total mental breakdown because he can't remember any of it so yeah, let's let's dive in a little bit more to his his mental health problems because that's there's more. Well, it's just let's there's different theories about it. No, nothing was ever like officially diagnosed, but there are a lot of theories from researchers today. 
in a study that was published very recently, researchers from the University Medical Center in the Netherlands said that they believe Van Gogh experienced two brief psychotic episodes. Yeah. Uh, but they, yeah. yeah, but they believed that a lot of it could have been caused by alcohol withdrawal. Interesting, enough, because. Yeah, he was drinking so heavily that when he would stop, he was going through withdrawal, which can cause him or make any anything worsen, you know, yeah. if he had any mental issues at the time. But there were also rumors that, like, he could have schizophrenia, as we mentioned before, or even carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh. A lot of these are kind of, like, highly improbable. It seems like he, I mean, he clearly had... Uh, some sort of bipolar yeah. disorder or uh, I don't know. But so despite all of this, he recovered after the whole ear incident. He was in the hospital for a while and then he returned to the yellow house and he kind of spent a little time in between like the hospital and the house. He was still having hallucinations. He was convinced that he was poisoned at one point. And later that year, the police closed into the house after a petition by 30 townspeople who described him as Le Rue, which means the red-headed madman. Mm. How sad, I know. So eventually he actually admits himself to the as an asylum in Saint-Rémy in May of 1889. And he actually, like, I don't want to say he had a good time in the hospital, because how do you have a great time in a mental institution, but he really had more freedom here than any of the other patients. Uh, he was able to leave the hospital grounds. He was able to paint and read and kind of just like withdraw in his, his room, which I think he liked because he was very introverted. He even had like his own little art studio there. He would still kind of like relapse into paranoia and fits, but it kind of seemed like his mental health was recovering a little bit while he was in this asylum. And, and in fact, fun fact, over the first summer while he was there, he completed his two most famous masterpieces. One is Iris's, but the other one you might uh, recall a little bit more, it's his magnus, magnum opus, The Starry Night. I love that painting, man. I really do. It's beautiful. And I think it was kind of like he's looking out the window of his studio in a... In, an asylum and, and seeing the, the sky, the night sky. And there was like, there's a bit of a, a shift in his work. I mean, star, the starry night isn't like all these super bright colors, but it was these, he's incorporating these darker colors again, kind of reflecting his feelings, the time the blue became a big part of his paintings back into his paintings. And in, in that painting, I mean, there's like this little village the, at the base with these browns, grays, and blues, and the sky is all swirling above. Yeah. But your eye is obviously drawn to the sky. That's like the most attention-grabbing part it. Of almost it. looks so textured like, in a way, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the strokes with like the little bits of light going into the, the sky. Yeah. So in 1890, he left that asylum to live closer to his doctor in Paris and also close to his brother, of course, who he's just kind of uh, riding on the coattails of. And this is towards later in his life. And when I mean later in his life, I mean later before he died. He wasn't old. Yeah. He was still quite young. But his paintings at this time were mostly of, like, wheat fields and harvests and a lot of storm clouds. So, again, that sky uh, moving around, kind of, like, ominous and heavy brushstrokes. 
so it, it kind of seemed like he was getting better. That's the thing. It's like it's towards the end of his life and he he leaves this asylum and things are kind of looking up. His art is is really changing into his own style. But on July 27th, 1890, our, our boy Vinny, he wandered out into a field, this, this big wheat field, which he had strolled there daily. I mean, that's where a lot of his inspiration mm-hmm. came, came from. He would love to go on walks in Paris and wherever he lived and just, like, take it all in. So he walked out into this field and just went behind this haystack, and he uh, shot himself in the chest with a revolver. Vinny. <laughs> Yeah, that's sad. He he was by himself, of course, and he staggered back by himself. After shooting himself in the chest with a revolver, he staggers back to this uh, the little inn where he was staying at the time, just kind of kept falling over and would force himself back up to his feet and got back into his bedroom, just like laid there in his room without telling anyone what had happened. Oh my gosh. I wonder uh, if he had a regret mm-hmm. that he made it or i mean that's just so interesting to me that he tried to get back to his house afterwards yeah well he didn't even die then he eventually walked to the hospital where he was attended by two doctors uh they didn't have a surgeon present so they weren't able to remove the bullet but they tended to him the best they could and then just kind of like left him there in his room smoking his pipe so again bullet wound in his chest and he's like in the hospital room just sitting there smoking his pipe like well here i am and the next day his brother tio came to visit him and and vincent seemed like he was you know he's happier he's in good spirits things are looking up but then within the next few hours it just went downhill and he he uh ended up passing wow from the gunshot wound and according to his to his brother tio his last words were the sadness will last forever. That's so depressing. Oh my god. What yeah. does that even mean? If he's gonna if he's dying, I don't understand. He was so sad. I don't know. Just so yeah. sad. Last forever. And I again this is just conjecture, but I feel like a part of it came from he he felt like such a failure, but he also felt really bad about having to rely on his brother so much. Like his brother was successful in his job. He had success in his family and love life. He was married. He had a kid. And I, I think Vincent Van Gogh just felt like he was dragging his brother yeah. down. And, and that's perhaps one of the reasons why he killed himself. But his brother, Tio, actually passed away uh, not, not long after Vincent died. Oh, really? Although, I believe he died from syphilis. Oh, no. They were very... They had a very unique relationship, I think. And, um, yeah, I think Tio was trying to save him, and he couldn't. It's it's very sad. Yeah, the whole thing is just... I'm trying to find one bright spot in the poor man's life, and I just can't think of one other than his art that ended Mm -hmm. up becoming world-renowned. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about his legacy and, and reputation because that's why we know Vincent Van Gogh. And I, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, he is literally the OG of the starving artist, like the yeah. the tortured artist. Uh, that wasn't really a thing before. And as we know, he didn't have success when he was alive, but it wasn't until after he died that his, his paintings became so famous. So is it like... Is that related 
in any way. Yeah. Like the sadder you are, the the more famous your paintings would become. So getting to his legacy, but d- during his lifetime, he didn't exhibit his work much. Uh, he went unnoticed by critics and the public. He did have some exhibits or he organized some exhibits. Uh, it included his own artwork and then other artwork, like including Toulouse-Lautrec, another huge French artist, but nothing was successful. Like it was just like maybe yeah. one was mildly successful if that and then even when and when he was alive in 1889 Emile Bernard had prepared a review of Van Gogh's work for a paper called Modernist but the paper stopped publishing suddenly and this review wouldn't even get published until 1990 oh my god so just like talk about bad luck he yeah. had opportunities where he could have gone huge but just things didn't work out so the first real review of his work came in January of 1890, and this was just months before his death. Uh, and it was in a in a publication called Mercure de France, and at this time, like some of his work was in, in Brussels, and but people just weren't that impressed at the time. <laughs> the French no. president at the time was just like, "I'm not very impressed with Van Gogh's art." <laughs> I do declare. I do declare. That's not even French at all. I don't nope. know what that voice was. It's like old Southern American. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't until 11 years after he died that his painting started to gain attention. And that was because, so his sister-in-law, Tio's wife, was collected all of Vincent Van Gogh's paintings and letters. And she became dedicated to spreading his work so it would gain acknowledgement. Literally, if it wasn't for her, he would have never been famous. So she like collected all of his art and then started to distribute it. I should have mentioned this earlier, but like when we think of Van Gogh, we think of like ancient times. Like, yeah, this is so. But there are technically still people whose grandparents were alive at this time too. So it's True. not even like that far back. But yeah, so Tio's wife was the one who kind of like pushed his art forward even after his his passing. And then in 1990, his one of his portraits or one of his pieces of art called the portrait of Dr. Gachet sold for 82.5 million dollars. Lord! And that set the new record for a single painting, the most expensive painting sold at the time. That's insane. A century later, after all of this, yeah. his, his art is literally sets the record for being like most highly sought out artwork. So you kind of mentioned, or we kind of talked about this before, but it just this whole thing raises a lot of questions about how, as a society, we value art because we see a lot of really popular artists, and that includes you know musicians, uh, actors, and whatnot. That the work from tortured souls or tortured people are considered to be more profound and more valuable, yeah. even in a monetary sense. It goes back to. I think as well, surrounding yourself with people that are your biggest champions in the right way, because you mentioned his sister-in-law was the one that basically maintained the art after the fact and got it out there. If that had been done when he was alive, maybe it would have been different, but I don't think people that are that obsessive about their craft have the capacity to think about branding themselves and marketing themselves and getting themselves out there. I think they just want to create Mm -hmm. and they don't think about how to, how do I become famous? How do I sell paintings? They're just so focused on actual painting that they can't do it. 
the creation of it. Yeah. Yep. That's so true. So yeah, I mean, it, his his artwork is uh, it's the most some of the most expensive paintings in the world, and his legacy is honored in in museums everywhere. I mean, there's the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, and I almost like, went actually. I walked past <gasps> oh, it. Oh man, yeah. the line was too long to get in, so I didn't end oh, up going. But nobody has time for that, no. especially not in Pandy days. No one would have been lying. <laughs> but yeah, that that museum has the the largest collection of his paintings and drawings. So that is our friend, Vinnie Van Gogh, the one-eared man who, I don't know, he decided to become an artist halfway through his life and really wanted to have that art lifestyle, like we said, having that art collective of just other creative people who all just hang out and create, but he had a lot of bad luck and a a lot of uh, mental issues that went undiagnosed. So that just leaves me with one last question, Jess. Is Vincent Van Gogh the worst? I don't think we could ever say that he's the worst, considering his circumstances. I think, was he troubled? Yes. Did he battle a lot of things that we don't even probably realize? Yes. Did he create prolific artwork that is still relevant today? Yes. So I don't think he's the worst at all. It's hard to... It's hard to ever describe someone that's battling so many mental issues that were not understood at the time as the worst, I think. Yeah, no, he's he's changed the world, man. It's uh it is a thing. I mean, I, I tried to find, you know, what was that pivotal moment that made him so famous, but yeah. I didn't talk a ton about like each individual painting, but he really did change how artists create and playing around with different colors and techniques and whatnot and that's uh some people did recognize that at the time but it wasn't widespread enough to to make a movement and it wasn't until after he passed and we said it was like would he have gotten so famous if he didn't have this tragic fall i i think so i really do but it definitely makes his artwork more interesting in a way if you think about how someone who's who's so tortured and, and ill to the point of really like mutilating themselves uh can transcend that so and i think too i mean art is so fascinating to me first of all i'm not artistic in the least i can that's color i can color inside the lines but i cannot create stuff out of my own brain like an artist but i think that art is so interesting because it's so subjective and people always joke Mm -hmm. about that but the other part of me asks why his paintings are so famous you know like the subject matter isn't exactly the most compelling thing in the world I mean it's just a little starry night it's nothing that crazy but that's what his most famous painting ever and arguably one of the most famous paintings and iconic paintings of all time I mean it's it's so interesting to me well I didn't know that that painting that we all I mean when you think of Van Gogh that's probably the first artwork or piece of art that you think of and i had no idea that he created that while he was in a mental or a mental institution he painted that beautiful piece of art that's everywhere from looking out his window of an asylum that's just insane and that adds so much more weight to it i think when you think about all the swirling sky and just the confusion and the anguish of it all yeah fascinating 
Oh, Vinny. Well, if you guys think that Vinny is the worst, which please don't, I think that would be mean at this point. <laughs> but if you disagree with us, or if you have a favorite Van Gogh story or painting that you'd like to share, let us know at podcast.designpickle.com. And uh, yeah, give us a follow on the gram or the, the Twitterverse. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. We'll be back next week with another episode. That's it. That's everything. That's the tweet. Thanks, guys. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>